Hi, everybody. This is Marnie, and I'm so excited to have you with us this afternoon for a wonderful program on how to tell a great story with our amazingly wonderful guest, Cease Murphy. He is a veteran author of over, he's written or co-written over 130 books, 130, and that includes the New York Best at New York Times best-selling book, 90 Minutes in Heaven with Don Piper, and also Gifted Hands, the Ben Carson story with Dr. Ben Carson. He has a book that is a 2013 release called Writer to Writer Lessons from a Lifetime of Learning with Oak Terra Publishers, and he's here to share with us today about how to write or tell a really good story. Welcome to UCs. Oh, thanks, Marnie. Glad to be with you. And you guys can find out about him directly at his website, Cecil Murphy, C-E-C-I-L-M-U-R-P-H-E-Y.com. Cecil, you say that you wrote your first story when you were nine years old, and what do you remember about that? <laughs> okay, I had seen a movie called Saboteur. It was an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Okay. I was just a kid, you know, and uh, there's a scene that takes place where uh, this woman is trapped in an office building, uh, locked in, and she's on a skyscraper. So she opens she opens the window and she sees there's taxi cabs way down below. So she starts flashing her compact and writes a message saying that she's trapped, and she throws the message out on a piece of paper and back back then, I think the movie was made in the 40s, um, they see it, look up, set her free. And uh, so that was so exciting. I, I decided to write a story, and I wrote a story saying, help, my husband is trying to kill me. I live at uh, 1302 West 2nd Street, and I put it out in front of my house, and it seemed like I waited an hour, but I was a kid, nine years old, so maybe it was like three minutes. But anyway, I didn't. nothing happened. About a week later, I was in the corner grocery store with my mother, and there was a owned by a woman named Mrs. DeRoos. And she, she and my mother were talking. Finally, she said, "Did you hear about the awful thing that happened over the apartments?" And my mother said, "What?" And she said, "Well, the police came banging on the door, and they said this, said this woman's husband was trying to kill her, and she started fighting them and arguing with them and so on." And uh, finally. Uh, you know, she's talking about it, and I'm I'm feeling guilty. Finally, I said, "Oh no!" Oh. I said, "Oh, I wrote that." And they they told me to shut up, never tell anybody again. And after that, whenever I went into the store, Mrs. Drews would say, "Hi, Cease. Written any good murder mystery? Any good mysteries lately?" <laughs> and thus launched the beginning of a of an amazing writing career. Uh, you you say that you have there are three gifts that you've been given as a writer and one of them is that you're fast. I am. Uh, the way I put it is I have really three gifts. I'm fast is one, speed is one. I'm highly self-disciplined and I have a lot of energy. And you know God has brought the three of those together and I think they work. You know you you say you have a lot of energy. Um, I don't want to spill the beans here, but do you want to tell us how old you are? Oh, I don't mind. I'm 80 years old. 80 years old. And how much do you write every day? Well, most of the time, oh, six to eight hours a day. Wow. And when I look at this list of your upcoming titles for 2013, I am wowed <laughs> by, by these. Uh, at least, what what do you have coming out this year? Eight books? Seven. Seven, seven books. Yeah, come on. Don't exaggerate here. Yeah. Seven books. I was trying. To, I was trying to count really fast as I was talking, but some of them had different lines in between. So, when you when you come out with seven books in one year, and you're 80 years old, 
and how how do you stay creative? I read a lot. Honestly, I read everything I can. I even, you know what? I even read cereal boxes. Huh. I read ingredients in the on the labels of the drugstore. I don't remember. I don't remember what they are, but I read them. I'm compulsive. Huh. So you read everything. And as you're reading, what are you taking special note of? I don't know. It just, you know, I, Martin, here's what I felt many, many years ago when I first started writing. I thought if I read, and read especially reading good writers, I will absorb mm-hmm. what I need to know. And, and I feel that I've learned more from just from reading other writers to see how they did it than anything I've, uh, you know, any, I've never taken any formal writing classes, actually. Wow. So, uh, but I've always been a reader. And and I love stories. Hmm. That's so cool. So if you were gonna if you were gonna prescribe for someone who's just an early writer, uh, an exercise that they could do, would you know what to prescribe for them? Yeah, you know, I never, I really had never thought about it until you asked me. Because okay. you know, some of these things I just do. <laughs> sure. I got four steps. Start with an intriguing beginning, and I'm glad to talk more about that. Build suspense. Withhold as much information as you can. That's the second one. Build suspense. Third, build toward the punchline. And four, give them a takeaway that's memorable. And is this, um, I, I'm going to have you repeat those in just a second for everybody, but is this the same whether it's a short story or like a full-blown book? Anything. 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 It works for I, everything. I, I, this is what I do with books. All right, let, let me give you an example. I said, start with the beginning. Little Women, I don't know if you've ever read that, but see, I even read books like that. I don't remember the exact words, but it starts out with something like, it won't be Christmas this year without presents. Hmm. And you, do you hear that? It's a very simple, intriguing hmm. beginning. It's not heavy laden. It's not heavy drama, but it invites readers into the story. Hmm. Uh, here's another one. I started an article that went, I couldn't understand why the Africans didn't remember the kindness, their kindness toward me. Hmm. Yeah. See, I'm just giving you something to make you think and, and and to draw it in. Right, right. So, okay, so an intriguing beginning. What was the second one? The second one is build suspense. Withhold as much information as you can. <laughs> Yep, and and how do you actually do that while developing a scene? Well, let me give you, uh, maybe I can give you kind of an example. Um, uh, I get these stories all the time, because, uh, you know, I've done some compilations, uh, and one of the things the publishers always ask me to do, well, I don't say always, but when, when I started uh, with these, I had a St. Martin's Press, which is a New York house, off, offered me a contract to uh, write a book of compilations and said, you can get the stories, but every story has to sound like you. So let me just give you a couple of beginnings that came to me from from people. I won't mention their names. Here's one. It was the most awful Christmas of my life until an angel came to my door. Hmm. I've got it. I've got the story. Why do I want to read the rest of it? Right. Here's another. I'm living proof that what Satan intended for harm, God intended for good. I got that one too, and, you know. And uh, here's another: Fuzzy sat bolt upright on the gurney in the last cubicle of the emergency room where he, death awaited him. He thrashed wildly, uh, like Lazarus peeling away the wrappings of death and walking from his tomb. 
Fuzzy Return from the Dead. Oh, I got the story. Wow. That I that was I read that quite fast, but he's on the gurney, suddenly he's thrashing around. He's coming from the dead. Okay, I got the story. What do I need to read the rest of it? Right. I think when we were talking back a couple of weeks ago, uh, see, that was the thing that really struck me, that I'd been doing really wrong with my storytelling um, that really stole the thunder at the end. I gave away mm-hmm. too much at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's you see you 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 you're so eager for them to get it. Let me try something else, Marty. Can you tell a joke? I can only tell a joke if I think it's hilariously funny. Then I can. But oh, otherwise, well, if I if I only think it's mildly funny, then I can't. <laughs> okay. See, but see, if you can tell a good joke, you can tell a good story. Okay. Because good jokes depend on the punchline and the takeaway, right? Right. Okay. So good jokes depend on the punchline. I'm I'm taking notes, of course. Oh, okay. <laughs> the and the takeaway. And the, right. And that's the same with the story. Right. Yes. We have to have a takeaway. In fact, you know, one of the stories that I I have that doesn't really fly very well is because I'm not really clear about the takeaway. And what do you do if your story doesn't have a really big takeaway? Well, then you make it really strong. And let me get, here's an example. Johnson Livingston, the missionary to um, Africa. Okay. Here, here's, an, here's how an article ended that I wrote. Where are you prepared to go, his inquisitor asked. I'm prepared to go anywhere, he said, as long as it's forward. Hmm. See, I don't need to give you a takeaway. You get it. Right. Is that another is that another thing that we do wrong a lot of times when oh, writing sure. stories is we, we, we kind of act like people are dumb and they can't get it? That's right. And, we, you know, I, I always figure that readers are as bright or brighter than I am. Okay. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep, right. Yeah, and I, th- I, think that we, I think that we tend on one, on one extreme or the other. We don't have a takeaway or otherwise we beat it over the head. Yeah, and, or, or we, we start applying it before we really get to the end of it. Mm-hmm. Or we start, see, a lot of times when people start telling stories, uh, they tell too much. Here's, here's a, a, something to help. R-U-E, Rue. Resist the urge to explain. Mm. See, if, if you really want to tell a good story, cut it to the minimum. Now, I'm, I'm talking short stories, articles, that kind of thing. Books a little different. But resist the urge to explain. So you get it in there, and then when you finish, you can, you know, Jesus was talking to these uh, that people about the uh, Good Samaritan tells a story, and, and he says, go and do likewise. But if you read that story, there's there's very little uh, explanation. Right. It's it's just the, an example, really. Yeah, and the emphasis is on the action. Or here's a, here's one of my my favorite Old Testament parable is uh, Nathan confronting David, and he said, mm-hmm. "You are the man." You are that man. Uh, you know, there's there's more to it than that. It happens afterward, but you get the point. Well, I think about I think about my favorite Bible stories. Um, you know, you've got little Joseph having a vision, and it's years later, after all kinds of mm-hmm. trauma, that mm-hmm. he ends up one day from one day going from prison to the top second in command in the country. Right. You know, and you've got you've got these riveting Bible stories. I always wonder, you know, when okay, this is a little off topic, but I've got you here, so I'm going to ask you: When Hollywood makes a movie about the Bible, and they they just they they change it all up and they embellish it and everything. To me, when I read the Bible stories, they are the most riveting stories of anything. 
It's true, you know, but you've got to remember, we bring things into our, our story when we read it. And if, if you don't have an imagination, Hollywood has to help. They, they're trying to help us get it. Okay. Uh, and and I, I don't, I don't know, wouldn't even discuss it. I think that it's important for them to make this uh, meaningful. Sometimes they make it too meaningful. I remember years ago there was a film called The Prodigal with Lana Turner. Uh, and, you know, who went to a far country and wasted his money. There was 80 pages of dialogue about that one. Just that huh. just that sentence. Oh. <laughs> yep. So maybe overkill a little bit on some of it. Yeah. But they were trying to make a commercial movie to to build characterization. You know, right. even like a movie, an hour and a half, two hour movie, you got to build in things that aren't, that, that the imagination or or research or both bring in, but that's a little different from writing a story. And how? Well, when you write a story, particularly if I'm writing just a short story or an article, uh, I want to give you a, a, an illustration. This is a metaphor, a picture to tell you uh, about life. And you know, I I want to get to you quick, and I want to build a suspense, give you a punchline. And let you walk away with it. Okay. Let me give, so, you, an, let me give you an example, yeah. may I? Yeah, yeah. This is about my wife. Hmm. We lived in Africa. She, let me try another way, because I'll tell you so you're not without setting us up for you. Shirley and her African friend Margaret held a conference in near Lake Victoria. When Shirley walked in, she saw this little girl who was dirty and filthy, so she picked a little girl up. She just felt compassion for her, picked her up, put her on her lap, and just felt she wanted to be with this little girl. And she said to somebody, what's your name? And they said, oh, she doesn't have a name. Sure, he said, what do you mean she doesn't have a name? And they said, well, she had them. It's been so long we've forgotten. So she doesn't talk. She fell in the fire when she was a child, and she's just really stupid. So we just call her you, you know. Mm. And Shirley made her felt even more compassionate. So for the three days she was there, Shirley held that little girl as often as she could. When he, when he ate, she'd sit with the little girl next to her and sometimes even feed her. And the whole time, on the day they left, um, they packed their VW, prepared to leave, and little no-name ran up to the car, jumped on the running board, and she said, A Hattie. And she's talking, um, one of the women said, She's talking, she's never talked since we've known her, the family said. And soon about 20 women were gathered around, marveling at the words of the child. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Here's my punchline. And it was a miracle. And perhaps just as great a miracle was what she said to Shirley. A Hattie, I love you. Oh, my. Oh, yeah. So you got it, didn't You're you? so good at this. <laughs> well, I don't know. I just like to tell stories. You do, and you just have such a gift for it, and I'm so grateful that you're sharing some of that gift with us today. Okay, let's jump back. I want you to go back and tell us the four points again. It was, number one, an intriguing beginning. Number two, build suspense. Three, build toward the punchline. It isn't just building suspense. You're building and you're aiming at something. Yeah, and number four? Give them a takeaway that's memorable. Yeah. Yeah, not just... That's the day I met God. That's not very memorable. But that's the day God punched a hole in my dream. That's memorable. Mm. Hmm. 
See, so when you are envisioning, do you, do you like see pictures of stories in your mind, or do you, is, are you more wordsy? How, do you, how does it work for you? Uh, we're kind of both. You know, I sort of see the pictures in my head. Um, but, you know, I also uh, love to listen to other people tell stories or, uh, you know, tell my own uh, of, of experiences I've had. And one of the things that I do when I give illustrations is, you know, you tell a story and um, uh, people don't always end with nice, even, memorable words. And so I think one of the liberties we're allowed is to, you know, toughen, tighten it up so that it has the real punch without making it 50 words long. Yeah. And, and so what I do when I think of stories, and I, I, I want to keep it true. I don't just make up things. I want to keep it true unless I say, Here's right. a story, you know. Sure, right. Um, and then I, you know, I cut it down in as few words as possible. Here, can I give you another illustration? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I went back to Africa after 14 years. I, by the way, I was a missionary in Africa for six years. And I met with several pastors, and we talked for hours. And I kept saying to them, "Do you, uh, I'm sorry, they kept saying to me, do you remember when you did this? No, I didn't. Julie said, uh, I didn't have any money, and you loaned me money from, so my kids could go to school, and when I couldn't pay you back, you forgave me. And another one said, uh, my uh, my wife was pregnant, the baby was breech, and you drove us 50 miles in the rainy season to a hospital, and she was able to deliver the baby, and went on and on like that. And, and I was listening, and I thought, you know what, I, I don't really remember that. And then when it was a pause, I said, yeah, but Julie, do you remember when I first came here, you helped me with the language. There wasn't any written vocabulary, so you helped me. He said, I did? I don't remember that. And this went on and on for quite a while. Mm. Finally, Blasio uh, 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 was sitting there. He was, had this puzzled look on his face, and then his, he smiled, and he said, ah, now I see those who who give must never remember. Those who receive must never forget. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Hmm. See, I, I, just his words. He said right. a lot more than that, you understand. Sure. Okay, all right. So that's what you mean. He said He said a lot more. He went on and on. But you just narrowed it down to just straight out the punchline there. Exactly right. See, I want you to give a punchline, hmm. and it has its own takeaway. Hmm. See, so if, good. if you hear, those who give must never remember, those who receive must never forget, uh, isn't right. that a takeaway? It, I mean, that's a plaque. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're right. <laughs> we, have, we, have a, we have a retail store, and um, I buy plaques for our retail stores, and some of them are so great. I, I have one on my wall right now. Life is not measured by the number of breaths you take, but by the moments that take your breath away. I mean, oh, that's very good. Yeah, right. There's these sayings, and the one you just said was one of those, where, I mean, you just should look at them every day. You really should. <laughs> well, one of the things that I do, um, Marnie, I have a little newsletter, and as well as, as, well as a blog uh, for writers and so on. And what I try to do, uh, and I've been doing, I just fell into this, um, is to summarize the blog entry or the newsletter in one sentence. For instance, you know that my wife died, and yeah. I, I, the one sentence I put there is, were the first words that came out of my heart when somebody asked me how, how things were. I said, "The pain is deep, the peace is deeper." Mm, See, that's so a takeaway. Yeah. And what I mean, I, it wasn't planned; it just popped out. 
Wow, that is so beautiful. You know, and and people can get a hold of those at your website, right? Cecilmurphy.com. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or just email me, uh, cec.murp.comcast.net, uh, and I give my newsletter, or they can uh, just look me up online. But I try to always give people a kind of a, a brief two or three sentences. You, you mentioned um, my book, uh, uh, Writer to Writer. Yeah. Even in giving instructions for writing, every entry ends with what I call an aphorism or a maxim, just a little something. Um, uh, they're not quite terribly brilliant because it's a restricted uh, area, restricted field, but I try to give people something they can think about. I just love it. You model that when I come to your website on the front page. You you give me in whatever it is, you know, I don't want to exaggerate now, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight words. <laughs> Um, you give me how how you want me to feel at your site. You say I want to hug people with my words, and and see, when you speak and when you write, that is how I feel. I feel um, the genuine love of Christ flow through you, even if it's just in a sentence. What a perceptive person you are. That was meant to be funny. Oh, good. I'm like I'm not <laughs> sure if I should burst out laughing or. <laughs> No, well, I don't thank want you. To and, and, you. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I was trying. See, okay, look, listen to that sentence. I want to hug people with my words. See, I'm in, that invites you in to my website. Right. Right. It doesn't say to you, if you want to be a writer, here are the 12 things you need to know. Or mm-hmm. uh, you'll probably never make it as a writer, but I'm going to give you some tips anyway. See, mm-hmm. those aren't, or the people really, I find the most difficult, those who give me these ponderous statements with big, big words. You know, people want the simple, the big, easy words. Yeah. you know. I mean, would, it, would you anybody misunderstand, I want to hug people with my words? I mean, that's it's pretty, pretty simple. straightforward. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and straightforward is another word. That's pretty much who I am. Yeah, you are. That's right. And, and I think that's critically important is that it resonates with who you are. I mean, if you are... You know, if you are the theologian and and you are pontiferous and like that, then you should probably use words like that because that's going to resonate. But, um, but when you are when you are someone who has maxims, who has um, has these little nuggets of truth, they're just that's what I think they are. I think they're nuggets of truth, and and you you throw them so freely. Cease. I love that about you. Well, you know, and they, they really just kind of come natural. Now, I, I will tell you that I, I, I used to read books of aphorisms. I get a couple of um, a, a couple of blogs where they end a little quote, famous quote at the end, and I read those. And, you know, after a while, you learn to just kind of think that way. At least I do. I have, uh, I, I have about 700 of these little maxims that I've written. Do you have a book of those yet? I'm sorry? Do you have a book of those yet? Well, I'm putting it into a book. I might one day. Uh, I did a book a couple of years ago called Knowing God, Knowing Myself. Mm-hmm. And every and none, none, of the page, none of the chapters are more than three pages long. And at the end of every chapter, I put a maxim or, or an aphorism. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for instance, here, here's 
the first one. This is this came at a very very meaningful time in my life. I was really struggling with God. I worked so hard and nothing's happening. You know that kind of thing. And so here here's the word that came to me. I now I had to massage it a couple of times, but here's the way it came out. I am passionately involved in the process. I am emotionally detached from the result. Oh, so good. <laughs> oh, say it again. <laughs> I am passionately involved in the process. I am emotionally detached from the result. I love that. And, and, and I work at that. From, for some of you listening, you're like, what? You can't do that. You can't, you can't become um, detached from the result. Otherwise, you're not really involved. But I, I agree with you, Cease, that that is the place of peace. Yeah, you know, I think the problem with most of us, I think the more zealous, the more zealous we are for Jesus Christ, the more we not only want to work for God, we also want to determine how it's going to end. <laughs> right. <laughs> See, and that's not right. our role. Right, it's not our role. Right. right. Well, what actually what came? I read an article, uh, a sermon by Charles Spurgeon, and he was, and he, this wasn't the point he was making, but he he pointed out that all God expects of us to do is to what we is, is to do what we can do, and he said the fisherman uh, throws the net into the sea, he doesn't make the fish, and he doesn't bring the fish into the right. net, he just does what he knows to do. Right. Right. So, so I translated that into just. These words here. I have this thing. I have this thing I'm doing. See, so, uh, um, if you envision a whiteboard in front of you, a big whiteboard, and then okay, okay and then draw a line in the middle of it, okay? okay. And on the on the top half of the whiteboard, make a little circle in the middle, and on the bottom half, make a little circle in the middle. And on the top half, in that circle, write God's stuff, and on uh-huh. the bottom half, write my stuff. And then on the God side, I write. I had originally, I had things like you know. Uh, war, um, financial collapse of the United States, heaven, um, you know, things that were really beyond me, just mm-hmm. slightly, <laughs> obviously. And then on the bottom half, my stuff, I would put things like, you know, a um, little financially tight or um, a concern about one of the kids or, you know, these things sure. that come to my mind. And so what I what I began to do is I began to visually grab the things from the bottom half of the whiteboard and move them up to the top half. And on my way up, I would do just what you said right there. I would say, God, I know you're busy, but but I'm just going to have to give you this right now because I don't seem to be able to have any effect on it. And so I'm just going to give it to you. And then coming down on the other side, I, I asked him, you know, is there anything you want me to do about that right now? And most of the time, peace and calm, quiet, nothing. I was supposed to do nothing except just give it to him. But sometimes I was supposed to pray about it. Sometimes I was supposed to take action on it. And I just love living like that, and that's what you're talking about here. Okay, and you've just illustrated my point. You started by inviting us in to talk about your whiteboard. You told us the problem. You gave us the solution. And then you end up by saying, so I sort of got, okay, is there anything you want me to do about it? That's memorable. Hmm. You did it. I did it. I did it. Don't tell me you can't tell stories. (laughs) Yay. You already already healed me. (laughs) This is awesome. Okay, let's go back up to the top here. Our hour is going away. So let's go back up to the top. Intriguing beginning. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add, or did we cover that one? Uh, oh, I, I think we've covered it. Yeah, the, the main thing with the beginning is 
uh, well, well, let me try not to. Another thing I think you need to do is to think about your audience. Who is going to right. read this? Some, um, you know, I, when I write an illustration, uh, maybe I'm not as spiritual as some people, but my purpose is to bring enjoyment or meaning to the reader, to the listener. Uh, and I'm, I'm, that's, I'm serious. That's the way I would say it. I want to bring enjoyment or meaning to them. And so consequently, I don't embarrass or confuse anybody, you know, confuse them or try to make them uncomfortable. I'm just not a guilt inducer. Um, and I don't tell a, a story about some member of the audience or write a story about somebody at the expense of someone. Right. Uh, just yeah. for the, just so I can tell a great story. Right. Uh, and, Here's another question. Um, I, I, here's, I see this question. Here's one thing I teach people to do. Ask yourself, will my readers care? Yeah, right. If I, do I leave something out? If, they, if it's important, uh, then put it in. But if I leave it out, some, some side issue, will readers even notice? Will readers care? And the fact that it's, I say it as a side issue, says generally you're saying, nah, not really. And the other thing is, I say don't bring in, bring up inside jokes and stories. Now, I sometimes I've done a few novels. And I sometimes plant uh, inside jokes, and I know they're inside jokes, and they're only for the few people who know me well and can laugh at them. For, for instance, I did a novel called Everybody Called Her a Saint. Uh, there's a scene in there where a fellow opens up a, a, a bag with some books in it, with book covers, and he realizes that uh, the, uh, the books aren't uh, the covers and the books aren't the same but I, I list five of the titles of those books and they're books that I wrote oh <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but only people who know me would know that <laughs> that's joke. great that's great <laughs> so you can't actually you can't actually build an insider joke if you don't leave people out so like that one nobody would know that you had a, yeah, maybe an inside right. joke attached to it how fun is that? That's great. Okay, let that's me try good. something else. When the beginning, never here. I want to tell you a couple of things. Never to say or never to. Right. I, I was at a meeting a couple of months ago, and this man was a long, boring speaker. I mean, really boring. <laughs> and he went twenty-seven minutes. He was only supposed to go seven. And uh, the first, after about twelve minutes, he said, "Now I have a few hilarious stories to tell you." Oh no! <laughs> well, well is that setting the expectation a little? Yeah, hilarious stories. Uh, nobody laughed the whole time. I mean, there were oh, cute little no. stories, but they weren't. They weren't hilarious. Well, they weren't even. They were barely oh, that, cute. Oh. Uh, uh, so, anytime you tell me what you're going to do, like I'm going to entertain you now. Okay. Oh, See, you, yeah. you, you're you're already off the stage. Get out of here. Hmm. Uh, so you don't say. You don't tell them what you're going to tell them. I know. I've heard people say, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you've done, told them. Um, yeah, maybe, but that's kind of boring. I and think that's, really not, to... that's really not storytelling. That's more like a, a pedagogy. I mean, that's more like in a classroom where you're really trying to get them to memorize the information. <laughs> I mean, that's memorize that is a good point, or, or learn it by rote. Yeah, memorize, good point. What I want to do... You know, I mentioned you mentioned hugging people. The way I think I don't think so much hugging as I think of myself as coming at you with my arms wide open. Yeah, right. And okay. I'll say, okay, here's what I want to give you. This is for you. Hmm. So if you that think of good, the, yeah. if you think of the readers or your listeners, 
I think our stories will always be stronger. This is for you. I'm writing that down. This is for you. Who is it for? Yeah, and we got to identify that first. Who is it really for? Yeah. And then how is my – and I always go back to resonance again, too. Is that really um, – Am I really honestly writing it for them, or am I writing it because I wanted to just get it off my chest, or why am I writing it anyway? Um, this should be for them, yeah, a gift. Yeah, you know, I've had a couple of books that failed, and one of them was, a, I, I write gift books for Harvest House, and one of them failed, and I knew it was going to fail, and I hmm. tried to tell them, but they they asked me to write it. It was on Ecclesiastes 3, there's nothing wrong with that, except they never identified the audience they wanted me to write for. And he said, oh, just give us some words about, uh, uh, you know, from Ecclesiastes to, right. you know, explain it. Well, I did, and I think it's okay. People who actually read it, and there aren't very many, but those who actually read it say, yeah, it's okay, but there's no identifiable audience. Right. So there, you don't, it doesn't ever come to life because you you weren't relating to anyone in particular. Well, I gave, at least the title, the title is called Hope and Comfort for Every Season. Now, just yeah. think about that. Right, right. Think about it. Hope and Comfort for Every Season. Wow, isn't that an exciting right. title? Right. <laughs> okay. See, right. And so I don't identify the audience. But I did another book for them called When Someone You Love No Longer Remembers. Mm-hmm. Now the audience is identified. Or your new book this year, Saying Goodbye. Right. That's right. Right. Saying, saying goodbye, and the subtitle is Facing the Loss of a Loved One. Yeah. 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 See, I've identified the audience. You wouldn't pick it up unless it was something right. you were interested in. Right. Right, but which is how. Comfort for every season. Too, too uh, broad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yawn. Okay. <laughs> no. Um, okay, so number two, let's go on to building suspense. I think you covered that pretty well. Is there anything else that you had in mind that you wanted to share with us? No, only, uh, you know, I, I, I gave this thing about Livingston. I want yeah. you to hear one thing. And this is just a very slight example, but it's, it's to give readers chance to absorb. So yeah. sometimes when I tell a story, I will put two sentences, but I'll put something in the middle, like he said, or give you an illustration. Here's the Jonathan Livingston again. Where are you prepared to go, the Inquisitor asked. I'm prepared to go anywhere, he said, as long as it's forward. See, this is very subtle, but notice the pause between the two statements. I'm prepared to go anywhere as long as it's forward. Just to say it that way is like, oh, yeah, okay. But if you stick, he said, in the middle, you've sort of, I'm prepared to go anywhere as long as it's forward, then it has real impact. Okay, and you know what? You had to actually explain that whole thing out before I caught even what you were doing there. Yeah, That's yeah. so small, but yet you're right. I mean, it it causes it forces you to breathe. It forces you to pause. Yeah, or the other, my other favorite way is to kind of give people a little trick at the end, a little surprise. For instance, when I was a pastor, here's a prayer I I prayed with my congregation. And now, in order for me to give you this, Marnie, you've got to repeat it after me, okay? Okay. Loving God. Loving God. Show me the truth about myself. Show me the truth about myself. No matter how beautiful it may be. No matter how beautiful it may be. But see, you caught it at the end. See, I haven't 
pray that I have them follow me because that's the pause. Right, exactly. And it's not what you're expecting. It, there, it, it is the suspense there because you're like, oh, no, what's it going to make me say? <laughs> See? Yeah. All right, you got it. See, I, I like doing that one, that kind of thing. And in fact, I guess so that every once in a while the congregation, somebody in the congregation would say, can we pray that prayer today? Right. Right, because we don't, yeah, we don't allow ourselves to actually pray that one. <laughs> yeah. It sounds kind of selfish. <laughs> but, or maybe uh, not selfish, it may be proud or something. Well, or we just don't know what we're doing. Which is normal. Uh, yeah. Uh, here's something. Here's a, now, this isn't original. I stole it somewhere, but I don't remember where. But it's, it's, it's an, uh, an acronym called CAR, C-A-R. C-A-R, Context, Action, Result. Okay. Context. So this is one of the things you want to get very early in your story. Where and when does a story happen? People want details. You know, we live in a culture, maybe this is too old to work the world, we want to know the time and the place. It just seems to be so basic. You ever start reading a book and you think, where is that taking place? Or is this the present time? You know, and there's nothing in there to tell you. So the context is very important. Just set it as quickly as possible. And second, what happens? What's the turning point? With the climax, what, what are you building to? And the third one is the result. Okay, here's why I told you the story. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I've sort of said all that, but that's just a different way of doing it. Yeah. What was the hardest book you ever wrote? All of them. Uh, <laughs> the hardest? Well, I won't tell you the person. But it was a, you know, I make my most of my living as a ghostwriter. I write okay. for other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the early days, my I, I was called a ghostwriter because my name did not appear, and this was one of them. Now I'm called a collaborator because it's so and so with sure. so much. Sure. Sure. Okay. Well, this is one of those. My name does not appear, for which I am grateful. Okay. And uh, <laughs> uh, the, the person I work with was really absolutely difficult. Hmm. Uh, he was lazy. See, what hmm. I do is I write a book. I write the first draft. I, well, I work with them until I get all the information. Then I uh, write a draft, send it to them, ask them to make the corrections. He wouldn't do that. He made me come to his office. Okay. He sat in one corner of the room. His secretary sat in the other corner, and I was in the middle, and they both went through it sentence by sentence to oh, make no. changes. Wait oh. a minute. Three times we did this, three oh, drafts. No. And oh, I worked on it, worked on it, worked on it. And finally at the end, his acknowledgments, he thanked me for writing the first draft of the book. Wow. But it was, he was, you know, he, he's a, he was a celebrity type, and he was kind of used to people bowing down to him, and I, I just don't do that. And that may have had been a factor. But it, he, he, I, it took me about three times as long to write his book as I, as I should have. Did you change then in the future what clients you took on? Well, actually, I took him because number one, my agent said he asked me to take it, and I and I, I knew of the person, and I thought it would be a good story, and I knew a little mm-hmm. bit of his story. I just didn't realize how difficult it was going to be. But sure. here's what I have done since then: I do not accept uh, an assignment on a, on a book until I've met the person personally. Ah, there you go. <laughs> yep. yeah, let me may I give you another example. Uh, 
just recently, I finished the first draft of a book. This is a woman who was caught up in sexual trafficking, human trafficking, mm. four times. Mm. She later escaped. She, uh, by the way, she was a high school. She was an eighth grade dropout. She got her GED, GED, and got educated education. And this month, she is receiving her PhD. Oh wow! Yeah, but I met the woman. And uh, at a conference, and she kept saying to me, I really feel God wants you to write this book for me. But I hear that all the time. Right, right. Yeah. And, but, and I, you know, I didn't know until I talked to her, and there was something about, something resonated within me. And I thought, this is a good story. Mm. And so I wrote it, wrote a proposal, sold the book. Hmm. Comes out next year. And we already have we already have a company trying to do movie, uh, getting get wow. the movie version. Yeah, so cool, so yeah. cool. Well, and there you did it. Okay, so what you did is you <laughs> you told us that story. You did the inviting, intriguing beginning. You know, mm-hmm. she's in trafficking. Then you built suspense for us, and then you built toward your punchline, which was that. Um, this is going to be a good book. Because of what you did in the foreground, this was going to be a good book. Talk about a little bit more about building toward the punchline. What are some of the things that you use to do that? Well, uh, the simple is withhold information. Uh, make the reader begin to ask questions. Well, wait a minute. What happened next? Or did they do this? Do Some people just don't bother to tell it. But, um, you know, you start at a place to get people interested uh, and intrigued. Uh, let me, here, another story. In 1984, I wrote a book called, for, uh, called The Woman on Death Row. True story. woman was convicted of uh, killing one man. She confessed to three more. Okay? Uh, and she was going to be executed by lethal injection. So how do I start this book? See, that's the question. So I asked people, if you were going to write this, where would you start? And the one they nearly always say, well, I would put her on the gurney or you know, just as she's getting injection. And I say, what a hard, negative beginning. I wouldn't read a book where a person is dying on page one, hmm. you know, the heroine of the story. And, uh, you know, they, well, how about the judge pronouncing the sentence? Still so pretty hard. Yeah. But, you know, why, why do I, why do I, would I, would I care about this woman? So, you know, I let them give all their answers, and finally I said, here's how I started the story, because I thought about all those. I have the story start with the sheriff coming to her home and uh, arresting her for murder, and she's shocked. Hmm. You go 100 pages into the book before you realize that she did it. Oh. See? But well. by then you like her. Oh, Hmm. See, if I, if I tell you, this is a woman who murdered people. She put, she she actually put uh, arsenic, rat poison, in the iced tea of oh. uh, of her victims because huh. apparently it's very sweet. I haven't I've never tasted it myself, but they tell me Good it's very sweet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but a very very painful death as well. So uh, you know she um, that's what she did. But if I start talking about, talking about you know, uh, on such and such a date, Velma Barfield was executed for murder, who cares? Right. See, the story will only be good if I make you identify with her and realize yeah. here's a woman that 
that you can care about. And the thing I bring out very early in the book is that she was addicted to drugs. And doctors treat women rather shabbily in the 70s and 80s by, you know, I'm telling to complain, not every time, but regularly women would complain, and so they'd give them tranquilizers or painkillers. Right. And she was going to 25 doctors at one time. Oh, my goodness. So no wonder she had a messed up mind. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But see, see, did you hear what she just said? See, now you sympathize with this woman, right. don't oh, you? Oh, right. Exactly. And the the other thing is that right away when you said the name of the book, I was curious. Well, is she guilty or is she not guilty? I mean, uh-huh. The woman on death row doesn't tell me if she's guilty. It just tells me she's on death row. <laughs> so right away from even the title, you had me um you know, intrigued. Oh, okay. I like you. You're you're very perceptive. Oh, I'm so quick. <laughs> uh, see, building toward the punchline, is there anything you want to avoid? Like any pitfalls that everybody falls into, like new new writers? Well, I, I think uh, one thing I've noticed is that if they get that far and it's doing fairly well, the problem is they tend to want to rush, rush through it. Okay. Uh, let me, let me give you a sentence orally. Um, if I'm telling an oral story, and I wasn't even aware of this until uh, I just got a letter a few months ago from a young woman. She was a teenager when I was a pastor, and she was telling me how much she learned from my preaching. She said, "What I learned, what I like most about you, is when you would tell us a story, and if you'd get to the very end, most preachers would shout out what you were trying to say." She said, "You would soften your voice and lean forward." And make, she said that I would lean forward to hear it. Right, right. Well, yeah. that's see, that's the way good stories are. Whether leaning, leaning forward uh, mm. uh, in an oral con- context or you know visually leaning forward, it's like you're you're trying to draw it out. And if I tell you too much or keep it or shout the answer, um, I, I'm really kind of insulting you. I think. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, take, take the story of David and Nathan. What if I told the story? And so, you know, the story about this man, the rich man had all these animals, and and uh, somebody came to dinner, so he stole a pet of a poor man. And, uh, you know, I could say, see, that's just the way rich people work. They steal from the poor, and they take their, their good <laughs> things. And so finally when Nathan looked at David, he said, you're the man. Right. Well, isn't that exciting? Don't you yeah, feel nothing. affirmed by that? <laughs> Right, right. Which is kind of moving into the the fourth one here, which was give them the takeaway that's memorable, and you know that story, like you just described, could have gone so differently than it did. Um, what are what are some of the stories maybe that you've had the hardest time coming up with that closure at the end? Well, let me just tell you this. Uh, anytime I use a story, write a book, give an illustration. I don't, this shows how peculiar I am. I don't write until I already know the end. Okay. Uh, I, I just know how it's going to end. Uh, then I know I have it. If I can't figure out how it's going to end, then I'm not ready to write it. Ah, there you go. That's really, actually, that's really helpful. Thank you for just saying that out loud. Because, I, I mean, that is part of my problem is that if I don't have the end, I have a really hard time writing the story. If I have no. the end, yeah, I, I think that that's, that's how my brain works too, maybe. You and me, peculiar people. <laughs> I, hear, I told a story one day, uh, I wrote a story about uh, trusting my negative feelings and so on, and how I, you know, 
and I couldn't, I didn't know if they were true or not. And here's, but anyway, it's a longer story. But here's how I ended it: My negative feelings are emotions. My negative feelings are not reality. Right. See, I've built it. That is your takeaway. You get it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. See, I, if the takeaway is simple and direct. You don't have any trouble understanding it. But some, have you ever read a story and, and you get to the end and you think, huh? I, I don't, wh- what? Yeah, well, it does. Right, it leaves you, there's this empty feeling like, okay, I got, I think I understood that whole thing, but I wonder what I was supposed to do with that information. Right, Right. or why, why, why did they, or have you ever watched a movie and you, or read a book and you think, they didn't end it, they just stopped. Right. And yeah. there's a difference. Right, an ending, yeah. An ending gives you something that you take away. Yeah. And if, yeah. It, if, the, if something you leave, even even if you don't like what you uh, uh, get at the end, um, at least you, it's it's wrapped up enough that you feel the story is complete. I, I just watched some movie the other night about some kind of school shooting, something like Columbine, but at the end... Uh, there's a guy standing there with a gun. Looks like he's going to shoot a young couple. They're all students, and it ends. That's the end. He's already killed half a dozen people, and he's standing there with a gun against him, and that's the end. I know. Whenever I see something like that, I always think they're planning on making another movie. I mean, it's it's not the end. That's see, what I think. Yeah. Okay, but see, then they're cheating you because they're saying to you, let's say that's their purpose. See, then that's dishonest. Huh. See, they're, they're saying, "I'm not going to give you the end. I want you to get ready so you can get in, you get it in the second edition, or it might be the third, or the fourth, or the fifth. But see, that's not fair. When I read a story, I want a conclusion. I want something to take away with me. You know, I I wonder if you have an opinion on this. I kind of think you do, but um, the stories where they actually like the movies where they actually want to do a sequel. Mm-hmm. I I think that they would have just as many people come back or more people come back for the second one if they didn't end you without the end. I mean, if they actually concluded that and then started an, a new story based on, you know, what you know about the people from the first story. All right, let me give my, – my favorite illustration is the movie Rocky. Yeah. won an Academy Award when it came out. It was the Sylvester Stallone. And I don't like boxing. I think it's a horrible sport, but I watched the movie anyway. It's the first movie I've been in where people stood up and cheered in the audience because mm. there's a conclusion. He wins. The underdog wins. See, you get the message even though nobody said, hey, look, the underdog won. Nobody says that. It's dialogue. But we got yeah. it. it. The story was over. And how many Rockies came after that? Four or five of them. But the first one was complete. If it never another done, never done another one, we would still have been satisfied with the ending. Right. Right. Violent as it is, but it's still a satisfying ending. So is there anything else? Like you've spoken, I think you've spoken to integrity here probably three or four times specifically during this hour. Um, you, that's really a big one for you. It is. And, and let me tell you one other thing. As long as I get you in my integrity, um, one of the things that really bothers me about stories that I read and I hear is that too many people always make themselves the hero of their stories. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, except that sometimes people tell the stories as though it happened to them, and I've heard it or read it somewhere else. So I know it's not a literal oh, story. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, 
I, I, I was at a Christian retail show four or five years ago, and this man, a well-known preacher, told a story uh, about a preacher in Ireland, and it was a powerful story. And a few months later, uh, I read it in a book, and I knew the guy who wrote the book, and I said to him, did this really happen to you? And he said, oh, yeah. And uh, and I mentioned the writer who had given the speech. He said, well, he read my book, and we talked about that story. But when he told that man preached it from the pulpit, he told it as though he were had been in Ireland, and, and it was in the story. Wow. See, that, not only is that dishonest. Right. Uh, well, it is dishonest. But the, right. but it, it's, it, there are two things to say about this. The first is the dishonesty, and second... Uh, too many people feel like they have to always be the hero of their story. Hmm. Do you remember I told you the story about the Africans and what Blasio said, those who give must never remember? See, I, I'm not the hero of that story. Hmm. Right. See, I'm just, one, I'm just one of the people there. But when you heard it, did it make any difference to you? They say, oh, well, she's the one who's here, but brilliant or insightful. See, I think the story has more impact because, uh, enough, if I were really spreading the story out, I would tell you they only had a third grade education. It's how insightful this man is. Yeah. Well, my point that I want to make is that we don't have to be the heroes of our stories. What we have to do is tell a good story, and it doesn't matter. Yeah. Hmm. I I wonder now um, when you say that if if you have a story that doesn't have someone saying like in some of your stories that you've shared today um, you have a little girl saying I love you 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 know you have you have these wonderful endings to the story do you sometimes do you sometimes like borrow um, like say as the old saying goes or as it says in proverbs or you know do you sometimes end it with something just completely that wasn't involved in the story at the time but makes perfect sense as a conclusion no i don't unless i tell you for instance the story i told you about the little girl little no name girl yeah. um that really happened now my where i where my the creativity came in is i said the miracle was uh, you know <laughs> They were everybody was complaining about her talking, see, and and and, and the point that uh, my, my wife told me this, the thing that touched her the most is when she said the word "ahead." He could both know the language, which is the Luo language for "I love you." Now I could have just said, uh, "She said to Shirley, I love you." That's right. okay, it works. But why not build? See, build the story again, right? See, she talked. Everybody's excited because here's this little girl who, that nobody ever heard talk before. And so I called that the miracle. But the greater miracle were the words she spoke. Yeah. Hmm. See, uh, I don't think that's I, I don't think that's uh, violating violating integrity. I think I was just giving you the story, but doing it creatively. Sure. Right. Oh no, I think so too. I think so too. I guess I was just wondering about those times when there isn't a spoken word at the end um to use and well okay then I, let me tell you how, you how i do that and i would say you know i, I, well, I wouldn't say you know i do that not, do not do that in print uh, <laughs> i tell the story and uh, i said i've reflected as i've reflected on that story it makes me think of okay so yeah so that is a something. legitimate way to end that absolutely legitimate yeah yep. and that isn't 
claim any kind of divine inspiration. It just says, you know, it just reminds me of something. Um, right. And, and, and I think that's, you know, and I, I admire people who are willing to do that instead of saying something brilliant. And so I looked at him and I said, blah, 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 you know, quote a scripture right. verse. Uh, right. Before, but what if they didn't? Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just Life isn't always so squeaky clean like that. <laughs> well, you know, I think of brilliant things to say afterward. Right, exactly. Most of us do. Yeah, I, I wish I would have said that, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. This hour has just flown by, and I hope that you guys got as much out of this as I did. I learned so much. I always do see you are such a um you're such a generous, a generous spirit. I love I love you and I love your generous spirit. You're Okay, let me giver. give you let me give you a Bible verse. Okay? Okay. Now, this is this is the King James version, uh, and it's Jubilations 4:4. 4, 4. <laughs> Yea, the Lord shoveleth it in, I shoveleth it out, and behold, the Lord hath a larger shovel. Oh, that's that's wonderful. (laughs) I love that. Jubilation. I've never read that book, but I want to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's not the Bible. It ought to be. Yeah, right, right. Should be, should be. Oh, this this is so great. And um, you guys, if you didn't catch it all, you can just go back and listen to the archive afterwards. Thank you, Cease, for being here. So grateful. Thank you. All right. You guys can find out more about our guest today, Cecil Murphy, C-E-C-I-L-M-U-R-P-H-E-Y at CecilMurphy.com. And be sure to sign up for his newsletter and his read his blog. Lots of great stuff over there. Plus, you can check out the writing training over at marty.com and find lots of great stuff over there. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you have a lovely, lovely rest of the day, and we'll see you next time.